Hello and welcome to another episode of Tez Podagogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning, produced by the editors and writers here at Tez. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy, and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing classroom practitioners today. This season will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES, and this week my guest is Dr Jane Gilmore. Gilmore is a consultant clinical psychologist at Great Ormond Street Hospital, a course director for postgraduate child development programmes at the University College London, and co-author of two books, How to Have Incredible Conversations with Your Child and The Incredible Teenage Brain. In this episode, Gilmore shares best practice when it comes to supporting neurodivergent children in the classroom. To start with, she explains how common neurodivergence is, how to ensure that no young person feels shame about their diagnosis, and how teachers can interpret EHCPs to support their learners. Neurodiversity literally just means a brain difference or brain or thinking difference. And um, as we are learning more and more about the brain, uh, which happens more um, day by day, we know about 15 to 20% of the population would probably be identified as neurodiverse. That, that proportion will likely go up as we learn more about the brain. And that means that in any given classroom, there's likely to be a few kids that are neurodiverse. Um, and neurodiverse is really an umbrella term that covers a number of different conditions. For example, autism spectrum disorder, about one or two percent of the population would fulfill that criteria. ADHD, about four percent. Dyslexia, about 10 percent. Tourette syndrome, about one percent. And dyspraxia. Um, there are others, um, but these are the most common ones that are most likely to um, be evident to teaching staff. What is interesting, though, about the idea of neurodiversity is that there's this a sort of social movement as well as a diagnostic group. And there is a move towards celebrating neurodiversity, not just tolerating it. So we're about recognising the difference um, seeing this as something where a difference is not a deficit. And at the same time, we have to recognise that it does imply that there will be some struggles in day-to-day living. So this is about a balance between celebrating and staying positive about neurodiversity, but also recognising that, you know, the 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 um, experience of being neurodivergent means that you are likely to need different support or additional support. Um, I think the final thing to say about neurodiversity, which just as we're on the topic, is that there is a move in the academic community um, that's become very, um, it's a very sort of vibrant uh, debate, which is brilliant, about the differences in manifestation between males and females in neurodiversity. So a kid who's got ADHD and is a boy will look very different from a a girl who's got ADHD. So classically, a boy with ADHD will be moving around the classroom, perhaps a little bit disruptive, whereas a girl classically with ADHD is dreamy, will check out in terms of her attention, but may not be as overtly um, evident in terms of her difficulty. So those are the sorts of themes that neurodiversity covers. There's a whole range of them and I could go on. (laughs) (laughs) 
And with that, you know, that 15, 20%, that means for a teacher with a class of 30 students, that six, six of them then potentially could have neurodiversity. And I think a lot of teachers, you know, do have training in how to, um, you know, support students, like you said, with autism, with ADHD, these sorts of things. But I mean, how much does that, um, are you saying that a movement towards celebrating, the, you know, neurodiversity? How much does that need to be part of their daily practice? You know, what is kind of, if you're looking at best practice of how to support a child in a classroom, what would you say they should do every day? I mean, that's a really good question. But I think in some ways, these ideas and the principles about celebrating neurodiversity are good teaching practice anyway. It's about playing to the strengths and thinking about supporting the vulnerabilities. Now, it doesn't matter if you've got a, a diagnosis or not, we all have strengths and vulnerabilities, right? So um, I think the first thing I would say in terms of good teaching practice is to think about the diagnosis as a way of unlocking resources or unlocking a framework. Um, so sometimes, you know, as teachers, you know, particularly in the recent years, have had just a ridiculous amount of additional you know, tasks and another, you know, another thing on the to-do list is not tempting. But actually a diagnosis could be seen as something that's helpful. It would unlock resources. Um, as I say, we can come on to that. But I think um, if you have a young person in your classroom who has been newly diagnosed with, you know, parental and, and family discussion, of course, I think a good thing to do is to discuss this, to share it with the wider community, because actually one of the greatest support strategies that we can offer a young person is to educate the world about what it is, right? Differences exist and there's not just one way of doing things. Um, I always say, uh, you know, it's not true that great minds think alike. Sometimes great minds don't think alike. Okay, so you can do different things and still get a better um, outcome. So I think sharing the diagnosis, if there is family uh, permission, of course, is, is a really good idea. And of course, it's about being aware that that might be a process in the family. Uh, you know, some family members may come to the diagnostic information a different way from others. Um, but if that's a given, I think using PHSE classes, for example, is a really good forum to discuss these diagnoses. Um, and one little tip would be about getting all the kids to share a different piece of information. So the child with a new diagnosis is not necessarily singled out. Everyone's got something that they can share and it's, it can be a really positive experience as well as, you know, an informative and enriching one and one of celebration. And I think the delivery of the information is so important because if it's something that's kept secret, and this is something I say to families, but I also, of course, say to families about sharing it with schools and school staff and support the support network, is if you're keeping the, diagnos the diagnosis secret, does that somehow imply shame. You know, what, why are you keeping it secret? If you say, look, this is part of who I am. It's not everything. It's not everything about, about me, but this is part of me. You are giving a child a very positive experience about information sharing. And actually that's a, that's a, you know, a life lesson that they can take, they can take elsewhere. But I think, you know, from a teaching point of view, if you think about the diagnosis as unlocking a framework of understanding. I actually think in my day-to-day -day experience, it's very, very powerful. And here's a good example of, of, of how that can manifest. So um, many years ago, in fact, about 14 years ago, I started this, a study looking at uh, primary school kids who are at risk of exclusion. 
And um, insulin behaviour then and insulin behaviour now is the most common reason for being excluded for school. So persistently insulin behaviour. So the kids that we were looking at were at risk of exclusion in primary school, which is relatively unusual. Most kids who are um, at risk of exclusion are in secondary school. But there was um, information um, about their behaviour, including things like talking back or having a meltdown if something was cancelled. Or, you know, so, for example, if a teacher said sit down immediately, if they're wandering around the classroom, they would sit down exactly where they were in the middle of the classroom. Of course, all these things are pretty challenging to manage in the, in the classroom. We looked at all these kids. Um, we did um, a study and we asked teachers, and we asked parents um, a little bit about these kids that were at risk of exclusion. And we found that 66% of them had neurodivergent traits. Uh, we actually did that study again a few years later with a new cohort of kids that were at risk of exclusion. And we did a full diagnostic assessment and found that 30%, about a third, would fulfill criteria for ASD. Now, the reason I'm saying that is that with that information, with that lens, immediately the same insolent and challenging behaviour is considered in a different way. So a kid who's talking back and is on the spectrum um, is likely to have no sense of social hierarchy. So a child who's on the autistic spectrum will talk to a peer and the queen in the same way. It, it doesn't have any sort of social nuance to that young person. And so talking back might not be considered in the same way. Um, sitting down immediately in the middle of the classroom, um, if we look, about, look at that in terms of having uh, difficulties with the pragmatics of language, the nuances of language, a child who sits down precisely where they're standing in the classroom might think that they're doing the right thing, but without the lens of ASD, it looks like, you know, they are pushing the boundaries. And of course, any changes in the timetable. So if swimming is tight, you know, is, is changed, um, you know, there might be a meltdown, the, the child might punch another child. But only with the framework of ASD, can you think about that? So the reason that's quite a long explanation, but the reason I'm saying that is that that framework allows teaching staff to go, oh, that's why. And with that, you know, the support will be different, but also it somehow takes the heat out of some of these behaviours because there is a more meaningful framework to understand it at a deeper level. And like you said before, it kind of um, de-unlocks the resources as well. You know, obviously once the diagnosis comes, you get the EC ECHP plan. Exactly. And in most instances, um, you know, I would I would come from this from as a mental health professional. So I would be traditionally doing the neuropsychological assessment. And one of the things that I do know about these assessments, and I've done many of them, um, is that um, they would be part of that, um, uh, you know, the EHCP plan the one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, meetings. Now, sometimes I would come to those meetings, but of course, it depends on your local education authority and, and health authority. But one little tip um, is that if you can have any sort of dialogue with the person doing the testing is to ask for three things that I can say or do differently in the classroom as a teacher, because these um, assessments are very in-depth as they need to be. There needs to be a, a, a very um, wide and deep expression of that young person's abilities and skills and so on in order to justify a diagnosis. But as a teacher, um, I think it's quite useful to say, right, tell me three things I can do. What do I say? What do I do that's, that's, you know, will make a difference to that child? Because that will really drill down to the practical stuff. Practically then, what can teachers do in the classroom? Gilmore has already talked about the importance of frameworks for teachers. And in this section, she runs through what these frameworks would look like for a child with Tourette's, 
autism and ADHD. If you can be really specific in your EHCP, it is much more likely to get resources. So that might mean describing things in terms of different subject terms, so different specific lessons. So some will be structured and and based in, you know, a lot of writing. Some will be unstructured and will have some social um, requirement. Think about, walk through the day that that young person has and really think about what would be useful in the here and now, a learning support um, person is expensive and it's hard to get, but that person could allow the strategies, you know, in terms of, you know, for example, uh, you know, if there's a kid with ADHD, they might have some strategies to maintain their attention. You could allow a young person with tics to get out of the classroom and, and keep their education going. There's a whole range of different things that you can use these resources for, but I think the key is to be specific, drill it down. And I think that's much more likely to get resource in my experience. Of course, that's, you know, uh, changes across different authorities and different funding bodies and so on. But that would be my tip. And it's one that teachers have told me they found most useful. So I try and do that in my reports. Here's three things to do today. (laughs) Mm. And how much support do you think that teachers currently get in the classroom then when it comes to, you know, intern supporting their students? Do you think do things need to change? Well, look, I think ideally they would. Part of this is about um, resource. It absolutely is. And I think there is only so much. I mean, we can we can relate to this in the NHS, right? We know there's only so much resource and the, the demands are increasing. Um, and so something has to give. And so it it is a challenge. But I think there are lots of things that, you know, I think with a little bit of breathing space, and I think if you're firefighting every day as a teacher, it's hard to find thinking space. But I think with thinking space and with information and resource, then, you know, things can change. So for example, I don't know, we talked a little bit about this, didn't we? About the different things that you might be able to do um, if you have a young person with a different sort of uh, neurodiverse profile. And those things are specific to a neurodiverse profile. But actually, the, the you know, it sort of comes back to what we were saying earlier. Some of these practices are great educational practice anyway if you have a little bit of breathing space and planning space to to your lesson planning, which I know is a big if, you know, and, and as things stand. So there are lots of different ways of supporting young kids who are neurodiverse. And I think one important thing to say is that if you have a young person who has a neurodiverse um, diagnosis, they are likely to have shades of other diagnoses too. It's much more common to have little bits of, let's say, ADHD and um Tourette syndrome, rather than having just one condition in itself. And in fact, the um, academic community is discussing the, 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 you know, the, the, the degree to which it's actually sensible to maintain having these silos of diagnoses. So that is a given and each child will have a different sort of set of uh, signs and features. But if we consider that often we have a young person who's been given a diagnosis, there are different frameworks that can be very useful depending on that diagnosis. So for example, in Tourette syndrome, uh, young people will make sounds and movements that they can't help in a repetitive way often, and they may come in bursts. But one of the characteristics of Tourette syndrome is that the tics ebb and flow. So they get better, they get worse, and nobody knows why. There can sometimes be triggers. But the other um, sort of characteristic part of Tourette syndrome is that the tics change in character. 
So an, an eye blink might disappear, but in its place, there might be a shoulder shrug. Now, staff often say to me, I've just got my head around one set of ticks and then a new set appear which is of course a challenge and that's one of the reasons why homeschool communication is so important to sort of keep keep uh, staff in 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 touch with the, with the changing characteristics but once they get their head around that idea that the ticks might might change in character there are lo- lots of um strategies that can be very useful and I know are used successfully um, in many classrooms. So for example, when ticks get a little bit bothersome, now that can be a trigger or it could be just something that happened, as I said, then kids may need to come out of the classroom. And in order to do that, they might um, develop you know, a tick card so they can put that on the teacher's desk and just walk out the classroom without disturbing the flow of the, of the class. Um, and so they can go and tick in peace. And that might mean that the school have identified a place where they can go and take in peace and and get over that troublesome bout and then come back into the classroom. But it's very important that there's a strategy to come back into the classroom because actually that's quite a big ask, particularly during the adolescent years when, you know, people's maybe self-conscious. So make sure there's a clear strategy about getting back in so they're not missing out their education. And also thinking about getting smart and seating. And again, that will change depending on the class. So, for example, in the English class, it might be best for that young person to be at the front of the class so they don't see the rest of the pupils because some young people with ticks will mimic or, um, well, this this particular sort of tick that they will copy what other people are doing in terms of their actions. So it's better that they're at the front of the classroom. Whereas in science, say, uh, a certain smell or a sound might trigger a trick bout and it's better than the back of the classroom so that they can get out. So this is about getting really smart about where the young person sits in specific classes and that's of course very relevant in secondary school. In terms of ADHD, this is a a one, a condition that that is very, um, young people who have ADHD really thrive in structure with clear expectations and a specific routine. Now, of course, that's true for many, many kids. But I think one of the things that can be really useful in terms of this framework is thinking about scheduling breaks. Now, those breaks might be every 10 or even five minutes, depending on the level of need. As soon as a young person knows that they have that ability to, say, walk across the classroom and sharpen the pencils or whatever it is, that five minutes will be much better used in terms of focus attention because they know there's a schedule break coming up. The other good tip is about um, using immediate reinforcement. Now, of course, this is a this is something that you know teachers very often will say to me, "Well, that's all very well, but you know, I you know I'm teaching a lesson and I can't quite think of something in that moment," and that's absolutely understandable. Parents will often say that too. Look, I'm a parent. I know what it's like. Sometimes you've just run out of energy and, and imagination. But if you, you know, for primary school t- kids in particular, if you have a lucky dip bag, get all the kids to, you know, give them, give a, give something that they want to do. You know, are they having, you know, chocolate uh, math time or something good? You know, put their dream list in. You put some some ideas in and put it in a lucky dip bag. And when you see that kid with ADHD do something that you want to see more of, you can say, right, take something out of the lucky dip bag and you've got that token. So you're giving them that immediate reinforcement and you don't have to stop for a second and think, how am I going to reinforce this? But it's a really good way of keeping the momentum going. The other thing about novelty, which again, you know, even the delivery of our lesson is something that can really engage a young person with ADHD. But of course, again, it's coming back to this good 
good teaching practice anyway. It engages all the kids. So change where you're standing. Get everyone to turn around and face the other, you know, another wall. Uh, switch the lights out. You know, do something so that the delivery of your of your, um, you know, your tried and tested methods are done in a different way. And it keeps everybody engaged, but it particularly will will help a young person with ADHD. Um, and I think just finally thinking about the third framework. And again, you might want to, you know, think about these things, not just as, you know, as a, you know, a case on a case by case basis. So different kids will have different needs. But we know that the characteristic of autistic spectrum disorder is having challenge challenges with uncertainty and social uncertainty in particular. And so that means that these young people will thrive in a routine. Now, of course, most teachers will have the plan for the for the day on the on the board or, you know, be uh, you know available to young people. You might want to do that more specifically with a young person who's got ASD. And it could be that you work with the families to do that. So you can say, well, look, we're going to go through, you know, this particular topic and then we're going to have some writing time and then we're going to have some, you know, question time. So it really is unpacking what will happen in the lesson in much more detail. And that doesn't necessarily mean something else for the teacher to do, but it's something that, you know, perhaps the, the family can, can take on board or the young person perhaps in time. If there is an uncertain time in the timetable, and inevitably there will be, and that's life, isn't it? And that's school life and that's life, is make sure that that's scheduled uncertainty. So say, look, in the timetable from 11 to 11.15, we're going to do something, you know, un uncertain, whatever that is, describe that. And at 11.15, we're going back on timetable. So the, the chaos, as far as an, a young person with um, autism spectrum concerned, is is challenging, but that challenging period has a beginning and it has an end. And that's much more likely to contain their anxiety. They're much more likely to be able to engage in that. I think the other thing to be aware of when you're a teacher working with a young person on the spectrum is that they may not pick up the nuances of your facial expression and your tone of voice that the other kids will do. So, for example, if you say something like, do you really want me to come and tell you why I'm feeling irritated? Now, all the other kids in the class will pick that up as a clear warning sign to hold it back, to maybe go back on task. But a young person on the autistic spectrum might think that's a true question rather than one that's got a nuance. Um, and so... When you do feel that your boundaries are being pushed, it's important to say very explicitly, I feel irritated about that because I've asked you to sit down and you're standing up. So you're being really unpacking it in a very clear way. That actually, by the way, is great, pro great practice for all kids in terms of helping them develop uh, emotional literacy. And we know that that is one of the you know, pieces of gold dust that is yet unmined in, in school. So these things, although they might be a different routine to get into, will actually benefit all of the kids. The final thing about um, ASD in terms of framework is that the idioms and the little sayings that we use day to day are very often those that won't be picked up. And it really comes back to that um, study that I talked about earlier um, in our discussion. Um, so, for example, if you say, you know, if you say something like that, you know, you've got a chip on your shoulder is a classic one. Um, you know, that's something that a young person with ASD may not pick up. But again, that's something to ask of yourself. Well, is that something else I need to do? You could do that in a different way. So you could ask the kids in the class, okay, every time somebody uses an idiom or a saying, 
you know, let's let's have a sort of, you know, a sign or, you know, put your hand up or whatever that is. And let's unpack what it means. I mean, that's a good English practice anyway. You can expand your vocabulary. You can do lots of interesting things with it. And it also keeps the young person with ASD on board. So what I'm trying to say is I think with the framework of understanding what the challenges are, it immediately unlocks a lot of uh, positive teaching practices, which I have to say, I don't think there's anything in there that wouldn't be positive for a neurotypical child, for any child. But it might mean that you are more cognizant of it in your teaching practice and it might come further up the agenda, but it will be beneficial to the whole class, I think, in my experience anyway. Mm. And I guess especially, you know, um, at primary school, for example, when a child, maybe a neurodivergent child is, you know, in, he's in your, th- your year three class. And actually there's three teachers who have taught that child and have had experiences and kind of will know like what the different techniques work for him. And, you know, it's really, you can really see how within the school community, there is so much expertise. It's not necessarily something you need to do by yourself, is it? Absolutely. And actually, I think that's a really good tip about thinking about retrospectively, but also thinking about school and home communication. So what works, you know, that consistency is actually very important, um, you know, between home and school. And so nab and grab every tip that works at school because it might work at home and vice versa. Of course, not all things will transfer between the different contexts. But I think that communication between teachers who have, you know, have... uh, taught that young person in the past, but also thinking about developmentally as well and across different situations. And if a young person responds to, a, you know, there's a mentor, there's a PE teacher, there's somebody maybe in the, you know, the support orbit, get them involved and get them to bottle what it is that they're doing and put it in, you know, in the plan. Because that technique, you know, if they can be explicit about it, can be used and explored and developed, you know, and and be part of that young person's, you know, education portfolio as they go through uh, secondary school and on into, you know, into tertiary education. So it's a really good tip. I like that one. It's not just other staff members that teachers can rely on when looking for advice on how best to support students, but actually the students themselves. Gilmore says that as children get older, they can take ownership of this framework and actively tell staff what support they need. Teachers more than any other profession see these children go through a developmental process. And actually what we know is that even if young people have had a diagnosis for many years, you know, perhaps even before primary school, when they get into their teenage years, they might consider that diagnosis very differently. And part of the reason for that is that the teenage brain is in a different state. As soon as puberty kicks in, things become different in terms of the way the brain processes. And what you were saying about taking ownership is a brilliant idea because the teenage brain has a number of different drives. It has to sort of fulfill these drives in order to become uh, an independent grown-up. One of these drives is figuring out um, identity, who am I? Another is um, being independent. right? And the third one is how do I fit in with my peer group? And these are really important drives. And we can think about how that might change our perception of these learning profiles depending on these drives. So for example, if we think about identity, you know, a young person is figuring out who they are, you know, and sometimes when they have that diagnosis, whether it's new or it's old, they might go through a phase of saying, I am all about having ADHD. It is everything that I am. It's everything I talk about. It explains everything I do, everything that I say. 
the same week they might say, I don't want to have ADHD anymore. I just don't want it as part of me. I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist and I'm going to not take my medication anymore. This is something I'm going to try out. And these vacillations between that identity, I'm all about ADHD, ADHD has nothing to do with me, are, are classic uh, part of finding the identity. Now, what we do know is that the likelihood is that that vacillation will, will will settle somewhere in the middle. But that process might mean that there are periods of time, let's say, that a young person with uh, ADHD doesn't take their medication. And as a teacher, you might be able to clock that something has changed, something is different about that. If we think about um, the idea of peer group and integration into peer group is a really important part of the teenage brain experience because we need to be part of our future community. And that is why the teenage brain focuses in, it zeroes in on peer acceptance in the way that doesn't exist before or after the teenage years. They have to figure out what the community thinks of them, what the rules are and so on, in order to be included in the community in the future. And so as a teacher, I'd want to really look out and see what the peer group think of that neurodiverse profile. What does the small group community think about, you know, having a diagnosis? What do they think about missing a day, you know, to go and get, a, you know, a, a, an update on their profile, for example? Is that considered something that's positive or does it become something that might make them stand out and make that young person vulnerable? It's really very important that that is, is heard. And I think teachers are in a unique position because they see and they hear things um, in terms of the experience of a young person, the context of the peer group that no other grown up really does. And so if they can see that there's a sense of uh, being excluded because of that, um, or indeed the, the overse, sometimes the um, the um, young people might sort of over-identify with, with having a diagnosis where in fact they don't. We know that we're seeing that, you know, in, in some instances too. So teachers are in a perfect uh, position if they're uh, to identify that. And if there is concern about being excluded on the basis of that neurodiversity, a whole school intervention is very often positively um, uh, experienced and can change things. It's a little bit like the bullying, anti-bullying um, interventions, you know, the bystander effect and how other people around the young person consider um, a particular issue, whether that's bullying or whether it's about being neurodiverse. These things are very effective. But the final thing, which is really the, the thing that, that, you know, the, the question you, you started with was a bit about the autonomy. And this idea is really wonderful because the teenage brain is driven towards autonomy. The teenager wants to become independent. Part of that will be about becoming responsible for their own learning profile. So as teachers in secondary school particularly will be part of that gradual process where we hand over from the teacher having main responsibility for learning needs to a young person having full responsibility, we would hope, by the end of secondary school. Now, of course, that will be a process and the young person will have to learn how to, you know, appropriately ask for additional support or appropriately say, um, I, I need you to say that a bit more slowly or I wonder if you could write that down for me or I need a break. Um, but those skills are skills that they will carry with them across their lifespan. Of course, neurodiversity is a lifelong condition. So their neurodiversity is not going to change their capacity to extract what they need in order to make the most of themselves is what needs to develop. And teachers will be absolutely at the heart of that process. Um, so the burden, if you like, of remembering this learning profile should pass gradually from the people 
to the teacher. But what an extraordinary life lesson for that young person, because that will allow them to engage in adult life in a much more effective way. So again, teachers are at the heart of that process. Yeah, you can really see, you know, especially as you get towards the, you know, the the end of secondary and you're thinking about, you know, what you're going to do after secondary school. Are you going to go to college? Are you going to do an apprenticeship? You know, what what does your life beyond school look like? Having ownership and really um, knowing what you what support you need clearly is going to be important when it comes to being in the workplace. Um, but I would imagine as well that sometimes maybe uh, neurodivergent children maybe can feel a bit helpless or maybe feel like their um, neurodivergency is going to restrict them in some way. So how can teachers help, you know, help them see that future for themselves? And again, I think there's lots of things that will be will be happening through the school years in terms of that positivity, as I was saying, you know, about not hiding that that diagnosis, about saying this is part of who you are. So let's look at your strengths. Let's look at your vulnerabilities. So, you know, jobs that are um, very focused on one-to-one and have a lot of sort of high-octane deadlines and novelty would be ideal for a kid with ADHD. A child who has ASD will really thrive in a place where there's routine-based, perhaps something with their special interests. So very often young people with ASD have a special interest where there's a structure. What I do know, and this is anecdotal data, I've actually tried to find in the literature some evidence for this and I cannot find it, so I'll have to probably do the study myself. But what I do think is true for neurodiverse kids is that they very often have found that their goal will could be attained, but probably not through conventional route. They may have to find a different way. And I think it's a really wonderful mindset to have in any workplace. So I think that sort of idea, like you might not do it the conventional way, but you sure as heck do it. And that creativity or that, you know, lateral thinking can be incredibly powerful. What is wonderful is I think the whole world is moving towards understanding that diversity is a great thing, right? Biodiversity makes our planet viable. Neurodiversity does the same thing in terms of, you know, our our community. And so there really is an understanding that's developing now in in the workplace about exploring and celebrating neurodiversity. So, for example, there are a few major companies, Microsoft, Ernst Young, Ford, SAP, these are major uh, corporations who are actively recruiting and hoping to retain young people who are on the spectrum, for example, with ASD. So it's an it's not about tolerating, it's about celebrating the skills that can be offered. Um, many of the um, support networks like the ADHD Foundation, British Dyslexia Foundation, Tourette's Action and so on, have um, ways of um, dialoguing with the workplace and allowing workplaces to develop a reasonable adjustment, as we say, if there is a neurodiverse need. But what I do think is actually the most powerful thing that teachers can do, particularly in those teenage years. Now, we know the best way to change teenagers' behaviour is to use peer-to-peer learning. It's much more effective to change behaviour for the better than an adult, you know, saying this is what you should do. Young people finding out and figuring out what they should do in a, uh, in a sort of, in a context of a dialogue changes things often in a very dramatic way. We know that from, there's many studies looking at health behaviour, for example, looking at that. But there's a, 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 
uh, an organization called I Will is iwill.org.uk. And I love this organization. It's a wonderfully powerful organization for young people under 25. And it really rests on this basis of peer to peer information, the power of the teenage brain and using the passions that they that the young people have. And I would start a project in, you know, in the later years of, 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 um, of school and say, look, how are you going to educate workplaces about neurodiversity? Find out the different processes that are around. Find out about reasonable adjustments. And you make a project in the context of, let's say, um, the I Will organisation and ask the young people themselves to start to explore that and make that part of their curriculum. Because, you know, whether you're neurodiverse or not, these uh, you know, having a level of understanding of what of what employers need and what you can offer is a framework that could be valuable, you know, whatever your orientation. To end with, Gilmore shares her advice on where else teachers can turn to for advice when it comes to supporting neurodivergent children in the classroom. I think if if a teacher is is wondering what to do, I think there are two routes. The first is um, in order to have fulfilled a diagnostic profile, there will be a health team behind that. And the health team are um, in a very good position to add additional information, maybe to be able to describe the nuances of that particular condition. So if I was a teacher, I would go back to that um, health team and say, you know, here are my questions. The second thing I might do is to go to the charitable foundations. So for example, Tourette's Action has a whole range of resources for teachers who need to think about how to develop their um, classroom plans in order to um, accommodate somebody who has tics or Tourette's Syndrome. So I think there is a lot of support out there. But I think probably, you know, this is a bit of a a plea really. I think actually my experience of teachers is that their capacity is enormous if there is a little bit of thinking time. And so whether that's the annual review or whether that's, you know, something that the the families and teachers can get together, you know, have an extra few minutes after, you know, a a parent-child conference is to think together and just do some creative thinking in a space. And my experience of teachers is actually with the right framework knowing that young person, knowing their teaching plan, they can do some extraordinary things. But very often teachers don't have enough time. I don't have mm. thinking space to do that. I think for a teacher, I would say, go back to the health team and say, here are my questions. What can I do in this instance? I would also look to the charitable foundations. There is a charitable foundation that will cover um, these particular uh, concerns. And I think also uh, the parent and school communication will be key. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Test Podagogy. Please join us again next week. Today's episode of Test Podagogy was written and hosted by Kate Parker. If you're interested in accessing all of our education news coverage, you can now get a digital magazine subscription for just £3 for three months. It's available on tes.com forward slash store.